You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 18 through 21 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 21. Let me read God's word for us. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Dante's Inferno, maybe you read it in high school, maybe it's been a while. But in Dante's Inferno, he takes us on this imaginative and somewhat horrifying descent into hell which he describes as a sort of spiral with ever-deepening levels. And the third circle of hell, as Dante imaginatively describes it, is reserved for the gluttons, those who spent their whole lives filling themselves with food and with drink. And as he describes it, he describes it as a place of filth and excrement drizzling down like rain. There's an image for you. A horrid stench filled the whole level. And the mythical dog Cerebrus is is standing guard over the gluttons. And in that place, the gluttons lie immovable, floating about in a swamp of sludge. And this life of consumption has actually seized possession of their bodies in the most tragic way. As they're so plump, they're immovable, lifeless, stinky, slimy. Their appetite enslaved their bodies. And it brings up an interesting point that what we consume has a way of seizing control over our faculties. A a Christian isn't to be controlled by his or her appetites. We are to be controlled by the spirit of God. Throughout Ephesians 5, Paul has called the church to holiness. Not just in Ephesians 5, but going back to Ephesians chapter 4. We've seen repeatedly that the call for the Christian to live a holy life in Christ Jesus is rooted in the Lord's gracious initiative to redeem us and to adopt us in Jesus. And so it is in response to the calling we've received by Christ that Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. We are to conduct ourselves as proper among the saints. So we saw last time that Paul urged the Ephesians to walk not as unwise, but as wise. But to walk in wisdom, Paul further elaborates, and if we're going to walk in this sort of wisdom, this sort of holy life, then we must be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, so Paul forbids drunkenness to make the point that Christians are instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Instead of being controlled by alcohol, which dulls our senses, making us those sort of immovable gluttons in Dante's horrid swamp, we are instead to be filled with the Spirit who heightens our senses and who stimulates us to live a holy and godly life in Christ Jesus. So first this morning, we will wrestle with the question raised by verse 18, why should we be filled with the Spirit? Why is that something you should long for in your life? Why something I should long for? We're going to first consider that question, why, from verse 18. And then secondly, we're going to consider the question, how are we to receive the Spirit's filling in verse 19 through 21? So why and how? Let's first consider why. Why should we be filled with the Spirit? In verse 18, Paul makes that contrast. You see it clearly laid out in verse 18. You can look at the text. Paul contrasts getting drunk with wine, which is debauchery, right? And being filled with the Spirit. He writes, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And at first glance, Paul's inclusion of this forbidding of drunkenness seems a little jarring, if not a little random. Paul, you're talking about wisdom. You're talking about holiness. Sure, drunkenness is a bad thing. Why, why bring it up now at this point in the letter? And there are a few reasons most likely why Paul included it. Perhaps the Ephesians, like the Corinthians, struggled with drunkenness. The Corinthians, you might remember, used to gather at the love feast, which is the time in which the church met to take the Lord's Supper. And the Corinthians, we find out, were celebrating the Lord's Supper and using it as an occasion for drunkenness. Perhaps the Ephesians were tempted to a similar pattern. Or perhaps Paul was just aware that in the Greco-Roman world, there was the cult of the god Dionysus which was the frat boy God, right? The God of wine and drunkenness and partying. So drunkenness was a prevailing problem in the ancient world, just as it can be in our own world. But Paul most likely though, includes this command against drunkenness because it provides such a suitable contrast to his focal command in this sentence, be filled with the spirit. So drunkenness and the excessive consumption, the voracious consumption of alcohol impairs our faculties. Alcohol has a controlling effect, not only in causing people to become addicted to it, but also it has a tendency to loosen our control over our bodies. Paul warns that the consumption of alcohol can be a deadly snare, hindering our control over our bodies and often loosening us from our morals and from the binding of our consciences. So drunkenness is a sin that has a tendency to lead us to partake of even more sin, doesn't it? Drunkenness is a sin that primes us to engage in further acts of sin like anger and wrath, coarse joking, sexual morality, and more. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was the Welsh physician become pastor, started his life as a medical doctor, became a pastor. And as he comments on this text, he gives a medical diagnosis as well as a spiritual di diagnosis in terms of thinking about drunkenness. Let me read what he said. So the Christian life is a controlled life and or ordered life. It is the very reverse of the condition of the drunkard who has lost his control and is being controlled by something else, as it were, and who is therefore in a state of utter disorder and disarray. He says, drink is not a stimulant. It is a depressant. It depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all in the brain, 
They are the very first to be influenced and affected by drink. They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, he says, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest, what alcohol does is this. It knocks out those higher centers. And so the more primitive elements in the brain come up and take control. And a man feels better temporarily What is really true of him is that he has become more of an animal. His control over himself is diminished. What an accurate physical, physiological assessment of drunkenness, but also the spiritual tendencies. Drunkenness makes us animal-like, beast-like. The Christian is not to be under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of the spirit. So Paul compares and contrasts the life of the spirit with the life of drunkenness. Now, don't take Paul's comparison here too too beyond what he's intending to communicate. The life of the spirit isn't intended to be some sort of spiritual intoxication, right? Where we lose control of our senses by charismatic experiences. If you were here this morning, uh, Jamie gave a wonderful overview of the book of Acts. We looked at Acts chapter 2 and the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. And and Jamie pointed out that one of the ways that Pentecost was mocked and derided by those who first witnessed it is that they accused the apostles of being drunk. The Spirit came. The critique was drunkenness. But we have to remember that those were people trying to discredit what was happening, to mock, to jeer, to disregard So read Peter's sermon in the book of Acts at the day of Pentecost. Does he sound like a drunk to you? Does he sound like a man who's lacking in control? No, if anything, it's just the opposite. Peter speaks with clarity and power and boldness in a way that he had never done before. So as we think about the spirit, the spirit doesn't impair our faculties. He heightens them. We don't lose control to the spirit. The spirit gives self-control as a fruit. Remember Galatians? So with alcohol, we have this tendency to lose control over ourselves, but with the spirit, we gain self-control. While alcohol dehumanizes us by turning us into beasts, the filling of the Holy Spirit turns us into more fully human to the new man, the true man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in contrast to drunkenness, the Christian, Paul says, is to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? In the Greek language, I'm going to go a bit of a deep dive with you, but stick with me. I think it's important. In the Greek language, the preposition for in, with, and by are the same word. (laughs) So you have to look at the context to understand how to properly translate this preposition. So when it comes to verse 18, scholars debate exactly how do we properly render, translate this phrase in English? Because as Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, is he referring to the content of the filling? The content that we need is the Spirit. That's the way the ESV renders it, as being filled with the content of the Spirit. Or does Paul describe the Spirit as the means by which we are filled? thus translating it in English, that we were to be filled by the Spirit. Now, perhaps Paul intends both, that the Spirit is both the content of the filling and how we are filled, but I tend to lean towards the translation, be filled by the Spirit, particularly because I think it makes more sense in the context of the book of Ephesians. Let me give you 
uh, an overview. So when Paul speaks of filling throughout the letter of Ephesians, it's in reference to the fullness of God. For example, flip back over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. The church is described as the body of Christ. Paul says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Similarly, Paul prays for the church in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. He prays for the church that they would have the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And look what he says in uh, Ephesians 3, verse 19, excuse me. He says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in Ephesians 4.13, when Paul is describing how we're to mature into the faith until we reach mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So filling, as Paul uses it in Ephesians, refers to the fullness of God in the Christian life. So for the Christian, we don't lack the Holy Spirit, do we? Paul says quite clearly that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption. He is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. So Paul can't be communicating here that Christians are without the Holy Spirit and that we need to be filled with it because we lack it. And that's not the case. We have the Holy Spirit. But if Paul is saying that we must be filled with the fullness of God by means of the Spirit, then Paul is telling us that the indwelling Spirit of God that we already have is the one who works to help us experience to an increasing capacity the fullness of God in our lives. In other words, we are filled with all the fullness of God by means of the Spirit who works within us. So we don't need to be filled with the Spirit. We already have the Spirit, but we must keep being filled all the more by the Spirit into increasing maturity and ultimately communion with our triune God. So whether you translate verse 18 with the Spirit or by the Spirit, the point I think is clear. Paul wants believers to be influenced by the Spirit of God. That is what leads us, controls us, directs us. So Paul tells us to be filled. Now, it's interesting, to be filled is an imperative verb. It is a command. Ephesians, be filled. But it's also passive, (laughs) isn't it? It's passive, meaning that God has to be the one who does the filling. It's a command. It's a command to receive. So Christians are commanded to be filled with the fullness of God by the Spirit because that is precisely what God's ultimate aim is in our redemption, that we might glorify him as he fills our lives with all the fullness of himself. So communion with God is something we are commanded to pursue even as we recognize that it is the Lord who must do the filling by the power of the Spirit. Let me ask you, have you received the Holy Spirit? Are you a Christian? Perhaps your vice this morning isn't drunkenness. Maybe it is. But maybe you're being controlled by the desires of the flesh in other ways. And as a a Christian is, is one who is ultimately liberated from the bondage of sin by the Spirit of God. And you can't be filled by the Spirit if you don't first have the Spirit. And the way to receive the Spirit of God this morning is to repent of your sins and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross. He took on the punishment of our sin. He provided atonement for our sin. And he dealt once and for all with our deserved wrath and condemnation. 
So if you're not a Christian this morning, let me urge you, implore you on behalf of God to repent of your sin, to trust in Jesus Christ, and so be filled with the Spirit. And so to help the church live this sort of Spirit-controlled life, Paul gives us the environment and the habits through which the Spirit does the work of filling in our lives. So we understand we, why, why we must be filled with the Spirit, but, but how does the Spirit actually do this work? How do we receive the Spirit's ministry of sanctifying us, growing us, maturing us, and filling us with all the fullness of God? That leads to the second question this morning, how are we filled with the Spirit? See this in verse 19 through 21. It's important to make a note that verse 18 through 21 is one long sentence. And so Paul is continuing to flesh out with the remainder of this sentence, just how the Spirit of God does this sort of filling. So Paul describes this process by giving five participles that help explain just how the Spirit does this filling. Addressing, singing, uh, making music, offering thanks, and submitting to one another. So those are the five participles here. And what's fascinating, I think, about this whole description is that Paul describes the environment of the local church where we are ministering to one another in all of these ways through the church's worship, prayer, and discipline. In other words, the church is the environment where we must place ourselves if we hope to live a spirit-filled life. So let's break these down just into three. Worship, prayer, and discipline. First, worship. Addressing one another in song. Addressing, singing, making music, as Paul talks about here, all of this seemed to have in mind what is the corporate gathering of the church, right? what we're doing right here, right now. So when, when the church gathers together, what do we do? Well, we address one another in song and make music unto the Lord. So the weekly rhythm of gathering with God's people and worshiping the Lord provides the time and the opportunity for the Spirit to continue His work in our hearts of filling us with all the fullness of God. So the church's weekly worship is the most concentrated distribution of the means of grace in the church's life together. That's why being here every Sunday is so important. We read and address one another from the Word of God. We meet the Lord in prayer, and of course, we sing. We sing praises to our God who has redeemed us. So Paul urges the church to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see that in the text. These three terms sort of overlap. And it's actually quite difficult to try to distinguish them from one another. But if we were to make an attempt, we could say that the psalms, of course, refer to the Psalter in the psalms. The hymns refer to the sort of early Christian hymns that were developing, like found in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5. A spiritual song could be a sort of spontaneous praise in song, like 1 Corinthians 14, 15. But I think it's best not to overly parse out the differences of these three terms and just see it as Paul is emphasizing the entire gamut of Christian singing. Christians are to address one another in music and in song. Music has always played a pivotal role in the Christian church. Singing has a way, it's a gift from the Lord, isn't it? As, of engaging our hearts and drawing God's people to praise him. 
Jonathan Edwards often attributed the means of singing to the Lord's work of revival during the first great awakening. Here's what he said. He said, music, especially sacred music, has a powerful efficacy to soften the heart into tenderness, to harmonize the affections and give the mind a relish for objects of a superior nature. That's exactly what singing does. It has this way of preparing us and preparing our hearts. It's one of the reasons why uh, we front load our worship with so much singing, because it has a way of, of kneading our hearts, making us soft, making us ready to receive the word of God. Often it's stressful just getting into this building, right, on a Sunday morning, coordinating the family. And yet as the church begins to sing, we find ourselves entering into the presence of God and our hearts softening, being ready to worship the Lord. Singing is so important because it primes the pump of our affections. It tends as this way of jump-starting our yearning before the Lord before we hear and respond to his word in the preaching event. Because singing not only draws our hearts to worship, but the singing of the church can also be a barometer, a metric by which we can measure the spiritual health of any congregation. When singing is weak in the church, it often indicates a sort of spiritual dryness, a sort of dutiful, dutiful formality to it, a lack of joy in the Lord. But when the Lord revives a people by his spirit, it is often heard through the amplifying voices of the congregation. The singing gets more lively, more earnest, more zealous. When, when Edwards described that revival in Northampton in the First Great Awakening, he wrote about how the revival produced a change of singing in the church. Edwards recalled before that they won't there to sing, but now that the Spirit of God came and worked, he talked about how now they sing with this unusual elevation of heart and voice, which made the duty pleasant indeed. Right? People weren't singing through drudgery. Oh, we got to get through this song, right? So I can get to lunch. No, but there was this eagerness, this joy, this zeal, right? To worship the Lord in song. And it could be heard just in the quality of the singing of the congregation. And this is just what we've seen all throughout church history. Often great works of the spirit of God can be indicated by the singing that is produced. Martin Luther, uh, the great Protestant reformer, cultivated hymn singing as a part of the Protestant Reformation, pinning such classics like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. The hymns of Isaac Watts played a massive part in the First Great Awakening. And when Charles Simeon of Cambridge oversaw a work of revival at his church in Holy Trinity, it led to an enthusiastic singing in the church, so much so that other churches started noticing it and being frustrated by it and disapproving of it, so much so that a church in Cambridge inscribed on their new bell for their new bell tower, glory to the church and damnation to the enthusiasts. And one wonders for whose damnation that church bell rang. A church filled with the Spirit of God sings loudly, joyously, fervently together. But, but notice that Paul emphasizes here the dual audience of our singing in church. That our singing in verse 19 is to, on the one hand, to one another. We address one another in songs. And as we raise our voices, we are singing gospel truths. And as we do that, we're actually edifying one another as we sing. We're encouraging one another in the church to believe these promises. Christ is the true and better Adam. Do you believe it? 
We're singing it to one another, encouraging us, cherishing these truths, and urging the church by our voices to live in light of them. Congregational singing is where every church member can encourage every other church member to cling to Christ. We speak the truth in love as we sing the sweet promises of the gospel to one another. And here's another reason why every one of us should strive to sing loudly and boldly, even if you're functionally tone deaf, right? Hearing the church sing is a powerful instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit for our spiritual encouragement. When our lives feel out of control, we receive the the church's ministry as we sing, Christ the sure and steady anchor, for Christ is mine forevermore. When we find ourselves distraught, we sing, is he worthy? And the church reminds us he is. When we are grieving and in mourning and lament, we hear the church sing, reminding us that it is well with our soul. One of the most important practical ways you can put this text this morning into practice is by singing loudly and joyously when we sing together. You may not have the best voice, but you do have a voice, and it should be used to encourage your brothers and sisters. Your voice is needed. I'm really excited about meeting over next door. One of the reasons because of the acoustics of that building. (laughs) I can't wait to to gather and to sing with the church and to hear just the amplifying voices of God's people singing together. Let's use our voices to encourage us, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, whether it's by adding another layer to the melody or if you're capable, adding a part to the harmony for the choir of the church. You serve one another your brothers and sisters, as you address them in song. But on the one hand, we're singing, addressing one another in song, but singing is a ministry to one another, but it's ultimately directed to the Lord, isn't it? We address one another in song, but look at what Paul says, but we do so singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We do it to the Lord with our hearts. Our songs to the Lord cannot be raised from a cold, dead heart. Our words and voices need to not just be going through the motions, but it should be arising out of us, a a heart of deep affection and love, an explosive love that bubbles out of our hearts as we sing. That when you stand to sing on a Sunday morning, we should all be careful to examine our hearts before we open our mouths in songs. Sing not because you are expected to, because everybody else is doing it, but sing out of your love for the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that where the heart is not singing, there is no melody. There's only the dreadful melody of human self-praise. Where the singing is not to the Lord, it is singing to the honor of the self or the music, and the new song becomes a song to idols. If our singing is not being spurred by a deep love and cherishing of the Lord, it becomes idolatry. So church, do not think lightly about the important duty we have to sing on Sunday mornings. Not only are we commanded to praise God through it, but it is the means of the Spirit, the Spirit of God uses to help the church experience all the fullness of God in our lives. There have been times of of singing in this church that enthralls me with God's presence and pleasure, where it seems as if the Lord has taken me up for a moment and ushered me into his holy and heavenly presence. 
giving me a glimpse of the world to come. The Lord has used you to do that for me. But, but the Spirit's filling us up of the, the fullness of God is, is done through singing, but it's also done through the means of prayer, particularly prayers of thanksgiving. That leads, secondly, prayer giving thanks always in every season in verse 20. The, the Spirit does his filling work when we go to the Lord in thanksgiving. This participle, giving thanks, is surrounded by one another charges, indicating that Paul still has in mind the gathering of God's people. That when the Spirit can fill us in private prayer, he, he certainly can do that. There's something special and powerful about praying with others as a way of deepening our communion with the Lord. If you struggle to pray privately, and I think many of us do, if you find yourself plagued with a, a cold heart, distracted, well, gather some Christian friends together to pray. See how the Lord uses that in your life. Giving thanks to God with his people can make our prayers sweeter and more arresting to the attention of our souls. Whether it's praying with your community group or for me, whether it's praying with our, our elders at a meeting or whether it's just praying with our church family on a Sunday, that the spirit works powerfully in my life as I'm praying with my brothers and sisters. Prioritizing praying together as we seek to be a church filled with the fullness of God. So let me encourage you to, of course, join us this evening. Not only will we be rejoicing together to observe the ordinance of baptism, this will be the first of our monthly third Sunday night prayer meetings. So join us at these meetings as we gather to pray together, giving thanks to the Lord and calling out to him. Paul tells us to, to give thanks, he says, always and for everything in the text. Always and for everything. Prayers of thanksgiving must be raised to God constantly in every season that you find yourself in. We thank the Lord for suffering as well as comfort, hardship as well as ease. All things come from his hand and even bitter sorrows are used as good gifts from the Father to make steadfast our faith. So contentment is the fruit of a heart of thanksgiving. Johannes Toller was a 14th century mystic and preacher. And he once met a beggar on the street. And Toller said to the man, God, give you a good day, my friend. And the beggar replied, I thank God I never had a bad one. So Toller looked a little confused and he followed up and he said, God, give you a happy life, my friend. And the beggar said, sort of matter-of-factly, I thank God I am never unhappy. And Toller looked at the man astonished. And he inquired, what, what do you mean? To which the beggar replied, well, when it is fine, I thank God. When it rains, I thank God. When I have plenty, I thank God. When I am hungry, I thank God. Why should I say I'm unhappy when I'm not? You see, when we receive each day with thankfulness, we find ourselves filled with the fullness of God in bubbling joy. So if you struggle with discouragement or depression, as so many of us can do, perhaps the most important habit to cultivate in your life is developing prayers of regular thanksgiving. It's hard to be discouraged when you're giving thanks. Each day, no matter how difficult the day may be, give yourself to thanking the Lord for your life, 
for the blessings he's brought to you, and ultimately for your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And before long, when you start expressing that thanksgiving to God, your heart is going to be so filled with love and joy and gratitude and contentment in the Lord. And so we pray, Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul shows us the pattern for Christian prayer. We give thanks to the Father in the name of the Son. The Father is the source of every good gift that comes from above, and we have access to our Father through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So by devoting ourselves to thanksgiving, prayer is another way Paul shows us that we can receive the Spirit's filling. But the final way, in a way that we probably wouldn't think Paul shares with us about how we receive the Spirit's ministry and his Spirit's filling is by submitting to one another. The Spirit of God fills us through the discipline and accountability of membership in the local church. At least to the third, discipline, submitting to one another. Submission is a word that we're getting ready to talk about quite a bit in the coming weeks. Submission is a word that causes so many in our culture to recoil. And as individualistic as we are as, as, as Americans, we don't like that the idea that anyone might claim to have authority over our lives. We want to be wild and unrestrained and free from the authority of another. But you know, our rebelliousness against authority isn't just an American thing. It's a human thing, isn't it? John Calvin said, there is nothing more opposed to the human spirit than the desire to submit to others. We just don't want to submit to anyone, anything for any reason. So verse 21 comes at the end of this sentence in verse 18, but it also functions in the letter as a bit of a transitionary verse into the section of Ephesians that we'll be starting next week called the household codes. Now in this section, Paul is going to give specific instructions for different household relationships for the wife and the husband, for children and parents, for the bondservant and the master. And by doing so, Paul is going to give the proper order for how do we conduct these relationships of differing authority in a way that properly honors God's order of things. But before he gets into the specific application of the Christian grace of submission, he first speaks of the mutual submission that Christians are to give to one another in the local church. So, so before Paul gets into all those relationship of authority and submission in the Christian household, he starts within the context of the local church community. So when Paul calls a Christian to exercise authority, the good gift of authority, that authority should be exercised in submission and under the supervision of fellow saints in the local church. Because if we will not submit ourselves to God's people, we should think twice before we use our authority in other ways. And as we know, authority can be so twisted and abused in our sin for the harm of others and the harms of our families. But if we all submit ourselves to the oversight and accountability of God's people, the risk of abusing such authority will be lessened. Church membership in a church takes its responsibility seriously to care for one another. And that perhaps is the greatest safeguard against abuse of authority in the home and the workplace. But if submission implies authority, then do my fellow believers actually have authority over me? And the answer to that question, as Paul states it, is, is yes. 
We submit to one another, he says, out of reverence for Christ, out of the fear, or translate another way, out of fear of Christ, the fear of the Lord. That's what motivates us to submit our lives to one another. So if we are truly subject to Jesus, we should not find it difficult to submit to his people. If we truly revere the Lord, we will, by extension, open up our lives to other Christians and submit ourselves to the members of his body. You see, most people think of the church as nothing more as a place I attend to receive religious goods and services. That is not the biblical vision of what it means to belong to a church. The church is the authoritative body of Christ entrusted by Jesus with the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose and to make authoritative judgments and recognizing kingdom citizens. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's a verse not about praying together. It's about the exercise of authority in the local church. When the congregation of the church assembles together and determines to bind or loose in its use of the kingdoms, it's making an authoritative judgment on behalf of Christ. In other words, as the members of the local church act in binding and, and loosing, they do so with the authority of Jesus himself. There am I among them. So now a quick caveat. The authority of the church is given by Christ, and it's given to the church, not to an individual member, and not to the elders, so the members should strive to obey its leadership as long as they are leading in light with God's word. So I'm not suggesting here some sort of Christian authoritarianism where the church has absolute control of your lives in a micromanaging, controlling sort of way. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am suggesting is that we do need to realize how much our individualism has shaped our understanding of the local church and that it's actually foreign to what the Bible says. We must repent of our individualism and have a healthy recognition that I am not my own, that as I submit to Jesus, that I am opening up my life to other believers who love me, who know me, and I humbly submit myself to them. Church membership is the humble and voluntary placing of your life under the authority of other brothers and sisters who have committed in covenant before God to love you, to watch over you, and to care for you in Christ. By becoming a member of the church, you are seeking to do what Paul is calling every Christian to do here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's important to make the, the note that nobody forces anyone to become a member of the church, <laughs> right? It's a voluntary thing. It's something we voluntarily choose. If you're a member of the church, we chose to receive you, but you first chose to join, to attend the membership weekend, to move forward in membership. It is something we voluntarily choose to do. But once a member of a local church is bound into that community, my life is now under the authority of that congregation. The covenant creates a bond between us. My relationship with the members of my local church is of a different weight, a different accountability, a different seriousness than all the other relationships I have with other Christians. The members of Redemption Church have a Christ-given responsibility and authority to care for me, to disciple me, to hold me accountable, and yes, if need be, discipline me from the church. And we should be grateful for such ministry. 
We should be grateful that God would give us the church in this way. What a joy it ought to be, right? To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to receive the the wonderful love of God's people in this way for my own spiritual protection and my own foolishness. And so before God, this is what we have committed to do as members of Redemption Church. This is the ministry we have pledged to give to one another. Remember our covenant. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. So if you are a member of this church, you have gladly and voluntarily placed yourself under the discipline of this congregation, knowing that as we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that this is the God-designed pattern for the Spirit of God to fill us with all his fullness. We thrive in this environment. The Spirit does his work of growing us and maturing us when the local church actually takes seriously their responsibility to love and to care for one another. And it's the ministry and discipline that the church provides, which is the means, the fertilizer of the Spirit, if you will, by which we grow. This is how God has designed the Christian life to function. So if you're not a member of a local church, let me just ask you, Ephesians 5, verse 21, how are you going to obey this text and submit to one another without joining a church? How are you even, how's that even possible? How can you live out this verse if you, by refusing to join a church, refuse to be held accountable? By refusing membership, you fail to permit, to give permission to other Christians to watch over your soul. And if we will revere Christ, then we must hear God's word and submit to one another. As Christians, we should be marked by humility in this way, that we would gladly lay open our lives to the inspection of others and welcome the examination of our brothers and sisters who love us enough to speak the truth into our lives. You can't submit to one another if you pridefully think you're better than everyone else. But as Christians, we ought to have the lowliness of Christ himself. We should be eager to receive the instructions of our brothers and sisters. We should see others as better than ourselves. So humility means that we receive the ministry of those whom Christ has called to build us up. If we will be a church filled with all the fullness of God, we must not fill ourselves with wine, but we fill ourselves with the Spirit of God. We do not want to grieve the Spirit of God who is at work in the church to build up the church as a temple holy unto the Lord, but we want to encourage the habits and practices that the Spirit has promised He will use to build us up, to bring us into all the fullness of God where there is pleasure and presence. So we sing to one another and to the Lord as we gather for worship each week, knowing that the Spirit is filling us as we worship. And we express our thanksgiving to God in prayer, thanking God always for everything, knowing that our grateful hearts will experience increasingly so more of of God's fullness. And we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, knowing that the accountability and the ministry of God's people will be used by the Spirit to build me up and to bring me into all the fullness of God available to me in Christ. So let us then invest our lives in the local church. The local church is the Spirit's domain for filling us with all the fullness of God. And so by God's grace, we are not left lifeless and immobile like the drunkards, 
but we have a life full vitality and agility and movement as we walk together by the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you recognizing, Lord, that we need your Spirit. We are so grateful that you have given us your Spirit through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask and Lord, we pray that you might work in our hearts by your Spirit to fill us with all the fullness of God. Lord, help us not to be controlled by the desires of our flesh and drunkenness, but Lord, help us to be controlled, constrained by your Spirit at work within us to sanctify us, to mature us, to cause us to cherish and experience more of the pleasures that await us in Christ Jesus. And Father, we are grateful for your church. Lord, as we sing and build each other up with our words, Lord, as we give thanks to you together in prayer, as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Lord, we are thankful for the way that the local church is used by your spirit to grow us and to sanctify us and to bring us into your pleasure. Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that we would open up our lives and invest ourselves in the local church. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us up day by day, week by week, moment by moment, as we gather, as we receive the ministry of your people, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with all the fullness of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.